Psalm 76, to the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also, his tabernacle, and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle, Selah. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence? When once you are angry, you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Our sermon today is Exodus 17, 1 through 7. It's entitled Water from the Rock. 17 verse 1 says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out, on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? These seven short verses actually tie together with hundreds and hundreds of verses in the Bible. Anytime you see water in the Bible, you'll probably be able to tie it into what's going on here. They're intricately woven together to show us marvelous things, which the Lord did for his people, which the Lord is doing for his people, and which the Lord will do for his people. We can only get an overall picture of this marvelous tapestry in a single sermon, but I hope that you will appreciate that overall picture enough so that when you read the Bible on your own and you come to a verse which ties in with this account, you can better understand the connection. That is, of course, if you are taking the time to read your Bible. Read your Bible. All right? Our text verse today comes from Revelation 22. It's the first verse. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We can't live very long without water, this is certain. And yet, water for our own physical bodies often only pictures water for our spiritual lives. What makes us think that we need the less important physical water, but that we can go without the more important of the two, the spiritual water? Are we that dull to the things of God that we could ever assume that this is the case? The Bible shows us of our great need for the true living water, and it does so often. 
Let us think on this as we read accounts such as the one that we're looking at today. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, why do you tempt the Lord? It's verses one through three. Verse one, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin. The previous verses brought us the manna to sustain the lives of the people, their bread from heaven. This passage now will enter into a similar situation concerning water. As always, the names of the places are important to consider, and certainly each was given based on what happened. In other words, the names of the places are not necessarily names that existed already, but which are given based on the circumstances that arose after their arrival. The wilderness of sin is mentioned here again. The name sin means thorn, as in a thorn bush, and it's a shortened form of the word Sinai. The name wilderness of sin hasn't been used since Exodus 16, verse 1, and here we're in Exodus 17, verse 1, and it's used again. In Exodus 16, 1, it said that it was between Elim and Sinai. And from this point, it says that they set out on their journey. And the word for journey here is different than the more common word that you're going to see elsewhere in the Bible. It is masa. This is the second of 12 times that it's going to be used, and all of them are in the books of Moses, the first being in Genesis 13, verse 3, speaking about Abraham, and the last is in Deuteronomy 10, verse 1. It means pulling up, breaking camp, setting out, or a journey. Instead of indicating just going somewhere, it indicates a station-to-station move. There's a difference between going on a journey from your house to North Carolina, like Jim and Linda are right now, and then back to your house. Then there is packing up your belongings, selling your house, and moving to North Carolina. The second is more of the idea of this word masa. The camp is being broken down, and the people are moving on. They are as pilgrims awaiting their arrival in the land of promise. Verse 1 continues, according to the commandment of the Lord. The Hebrew literally says, according to the mouth of Jehovah. He opened his mouth in instruction, and the people moved according to that. This does not mean that the pillar is not with them. You know, the pillar of cloud and fire, which we've seen. What it does mean is that the directions were to follow the pillar, and they're according to his spoken word. We can reasonably assume that the pillar is with them. It needs to be considered that everything which will take place then is according to his intentions. He has instructed the people, he has led them, and he will take them intentionally to a place where there is no water. We can never derive from this account the notion that any of what happens does so apart from his specific intent. And so everything that does happen is given to show us a picture of something else. There's no reason to think otherwise, and there is only the complete assurance that this is the case. This will be seen more exactly in the next words. Verse 1 continues, and camped in Rephidim. It is accepted that Rephidim today, by most scholars, is known as the Wadi Farain. The detailed record of the wilderness wanderings in Numbers chapter 33 says this about the travel of the Israelites, though. Listen carefully. They moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin, where we just were. Then they journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dofka. They departed from Dofka and camped at Alush. They moved from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. 
every scholar that I read who commented on why this record in Exodus leaves off Dufka and Elush said basically the same thing. Their answer is that probably because nothing of moment took place at either. Well, that sounds like a cop-out. Rather than taking a negative view, I would choose to take a positive one and say that each place where something is recorded is because the Lord selected it to show us the work of Christ. This is the first of five times that Rephidim will be mentioned in the Bible, and all of them are going to be in Exodus and Numbers. Rephidim is a plural noun. The I am at the end of a word indicates it being plural. It's like our S on the end of a word. It's a plural noun which comes from the word rafad, which means to spread, as in a bed. And so by implication, it means to refresh or to comfort. The word is used in the Song of Solomon in exactly this way. Here's what it says. Sustain me with cakes of raisin, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Rafad's sole derivative is a feminine noun, which is rafida, which indicates a rest or support structure. That's used only once in the Bible, and it's also in the Song of Solomon as well. It says there, he made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Chapter 16 began in Elim, which pictured the message of Christ, with went out, which went out by the mouth of the 12 apostles and the 70 disciples. From there, it went to the wilderness of sin, the wilderness of the thorn, where the quail and the manna were received. That pictured Christ's body being given as flesh to eat and bread to sustain. Now they leave that area and arrive in Rephidim. What picture is then being made? A clue is found in the finishing words of verse 1. But there was no water for the people to drink. Again, water is the issue, just as it was at Marah, where the bitter waters were made sweet. However, the problem isn't that there is bitter water, it is that there is no water. One thing is for sure, in the dry wilderness, life cannot live long without water. But let us not forget that it is the Lord who directed them here, and he has done this for a reason. Verse 2, therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. Charles Ellicott notes, we cannot be surprised at their chiding. Nothing but a very lively faith or an utter resignation to the will of God could have made a people patient and submissive in such an extremity. And it's hard to disagree with this. We are creatures which are tied to our bodies, which easily tire, quickly run dry, and are constantly in need of food. If we don't get sleep, water, or food, we can quickly change into a being that does not resemble our normal selves at all. I see a head nodding over here, and I can assure you that if you ask my wife, she will tell you that's true as well. The Israelites were no different. Add into this a large multitude that tire at differing rates, and you can see how some would wear out and start grumbling more quickly. Once a grumbling starts, what's going to happen? It's going to grow, absolutely. It's going to spread very rapidly from one to all of the people. In the case of walking among the wadis or the dry riverbeds, there would be an even more pronounced feeling of misery. Wadis imply that there was once water in abundance flowing right at their feet. Along the sides of the wadis, there would be plants which had gathered up the remaining waters as the torrents had subsided. In essence, there would be signs of water, water everywhere, yet not a drop to drink. Mm -hmm. However, there is also the truth that the Lord had already showed them amazing acts of power and gracious kindness 
Would the people remember these lessons longer than the strain of lacking their basic needs? Unfortunately, no. As Albert Barnes notes, it is a general characteristic of the Israelites that the miracles which met each need as it arose failed to produce a habit of faith. And this is exactly what the Lord has purposed for them. He was leading them to extreme points of their physical existence in order to produce a habit of faith and complete reliance on him. And time and time again, they failed to realize this. As these physical examples are intended to reveal spiritual pictures of Christ, then we should obviously look at the practice of our faith and see if it is, in fact, sound. Do we trust the Lord with each step of our walk? I've noticed several types of people who post their lives openly on Facebook for the whole world to see. There are those who post how excited they are about going to church on Sunday morning. Boop, 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 boop. I'm going to church today. I'm so excited. I'm going to get the Holy Spirit and I'm just going to be oh so happy, right? And then they come home and they boast about the great portion or double portion or triple portion of the Holy Spirit that they got. And oh, boop, 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 how super life is. On Monday, they're posting photos of piles of money that say, if you like this photo, comment amen and share it in the next 10 minutes and you'll receive a large sum in your bank account. Boop, 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 I'm going to be so rich today. The expectation of the God of fortune has replaced the reliance on the Lord. By Tuesday morning, they're complaining about life's ills. Oh, boop, 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 I lack this and I lack that. Oh, boop, 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 and I have this general drag in my life. I just have to trudge through the week. It's so difficult, and you see this all week long from these people. On Wednesday, they're angry because they didn't win the lottery. The pastor told them that they would be blessed and they would reap a thousandfold if they gave in a big way and they were sure that it meant right now and in a big way. Bup, 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 I'm going to win the lottery today, the pastor told me, and then they don't win. They even bought the tube of miracle anointing oil at the church lobby for $25 and anointed the doorposts of their house and their checkbook with oil. And I have people post this on Facebook. Boop, 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 I got my miracle anointing oil. I'm going to get it this week. I'm telling you the truth. Why was the Lord neglecting them? Why? The next Sunday, they start to cycle all over again. And I see this week after week after week. And then... There are those who post about being excited that they're leaving for church. Oh, boop, 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 I'm going to go to church today and it's going to be great. We're going to open the Bible and we're going to share God's word. They come home and they post about the great lessons from scripture that they assimilated into who they are. Oh, that sermon was perfectly relevant to my life right now. Everything he said was directed right at me alone. They post on Monday about the excellent devotional they read. Ah, That guy pegged my week perfectly. I'm so excited to read it. I'm so glad to be in the Bible. It is wonderful. They post on Tuesday about their brother who was just diagnosed with terminal cancer, but how thankful they are for having him in their life and about the honor of being there for him during the ordeal. On Wednesday, they post about the fantastic Bible study. Boop, boop, boop. Oh, it was great. It was just so relevant. We got into God's word. I saw Christ all over the book of Exodus. It was wonderful. And they tell you how relevant God's word is to their own situation at the time. On Friday, they post that their house burned down and the bank lost all of their money, but how grateful they are that the Lord is there with them through it all. They're thankful for their church. They're thankful for the people that they attend with and in the outpouring and support of prayers that they have received. It's all a matter of perspective, and the Lord is trying to get Israel to take the right perspective. 
And in his lessons to them, he is asking us to do the same. He has given us examples of what pleases him and what angers him. Verse 2 continues, So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Moses responds that the people are acting inappropriately in two different ways. First, he asks them, Why do you contend with me? Here he uses the same word which was used at the beginning of verse 2, riv. It means to contend or to quarrel. It is what the story says they did, and this is what Moses confirms that they are doing. However, instead of stopping there, he elevates the severity of their complaints to the appropriate level of the offense. They may be quarreling with him, but they are tempting the Lord. Here he uses the word nasa. It means to put to the test or to prove, something like that. It is the same word that the Lord has twice used concerning his attempts to mold and shape the people into an obedient group who would be willing to simply trust him. The first came in Exodus 15. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and he tested, Nasa tested them, and said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then in Exodus 16, the word is used again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. They had been explicitly told that he was testing them for obedience and trust. And yet Moses now shows them that they have instead put the Lord to the test. The words are valuable to evaluate because it shows us more clearly the situation at hand. John Gill rightly explains the situation. He says they tried his power, whether he could give them water in a dry and desert land. They tried his patience by chiding with his servants and showing so much distrust of his power and providence, of his goodness and faithfulness. And by their wretched ingratitude and rebellion, they tempted him to work a miracle for them. Let us ask ourselves, are we receiving the tests of the Lord and using them to mold our faith, or are we testing the Lord by failing to see his hand of grace upon us, even in times of extreme trial? Verse 3, and the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The truth of the record of the Exodus account can be implied from verses like this one right here. Israel was in bondage in Egypt, and eventually they ended up in the land of Canaan. This we know. Had they left Egypt, the natural thing for them to do would be to head straight for Canaan. They didn't. Instead, they went in the opposite way. When they left, it was apparently without enough food and water for even a few days, much less a long trek. Only a fool would do something like that. How much more foolish would it be for an entire congregation of people to do it? One may find something to sustain life in the wilderness, but two million people could never. And to exacerbate the situation, children and livestock came along too. The only reasonable explanation for the entire scenario is that the Lord led them. They followed, and they were completely dependent upon him from the very start. If this is not what happened, then the story is simply a fabrication about a most foolish group with an even more foolish leader but it is not. And yet, despite this, it is the exact kind of accusation that they now make. They had left Egypt unprepared as if the intent was to kill them. 
If it were only Moses there, the allegation might seem reasonable. But Moses is not alone. If they would simply evaluate the situation, they would be willing to pray in faith instead of argue in the flesh. However, the lack of water, which was not only destroying them, but also their children and their livestock, was too great an affliction for them to see beyond. Surely, of all of the afflictions that we can face, thirst is one of the worst. The Lord was beaten, he was ripped, he was nailed to a tree, but the only agony that he called out as he hung there dying was, I thirst. And like him, the people are so suffering. Were they justified in their anger? In the body, I would say yes. In the spirit, no. They still lack the faith needed as a group of people to understand that the Lord alone directs each moment's existence for each and every soul. It appears that as a group of people, they never really acquired this faith. The 78th Psalm speaks of their situation. It says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and an anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna on them to eat and gave them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. If we just had water, we could go on. But instead, we're out here dying of thirst. Our lives are ebbing away and our strength is almost gone. Things are much worse now than at the first. When we were in Egypt, we at least had life. Now only death seems to await us in this dry land. With Moses, we have quarreled. Between us, there is strife. But he says we are only tempting the Lord's gracious hand. Where are the Lord's grace and his gracious hand? We see the pillar, but our souls are dry and parched. Yes, the pillar is there, but we cannot understand why to this barren place he is led as we have marched. Our second thought today is you shall strike the rock. It's verses four through seven. Verse four, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, the notable thing about Moses is that he first defended the Lord in the eyes of the people and then he immediately elevated the people's request to the Lord. There is no hint of him either speaking highly of himself, such as, you dare to resist me, the Lord's representative? Nor does he have Aaron come to his rescue either. You dare to resist Moses, the Lord's representative? Instead, he defended the Lord's integrity and then he went straight to the Lord in petition. And his petition refrains from any accusation against the Lord. Verse 4 continues, What shall I do with this people? Moses doesn't ask, What have you done to this people? He doesn't ask, What are you going to do for this people? And he doesn't say, You have left this people in a bad situation. Instead, he says, What shall I do with this people? He never finds fault in the Lord. Instead, he asks for the directions which he can then carry out. It is for such reasons as this that Numbers 12, verse 3 will say, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. His humility is beautifully evident, whether he is addressing the people below him or the God who is above him. Verse 4 continues, They are almost ready to stone me. 
This is the first time in recorded human history that stoning is mentioned as an individual punishment. The stoning of all of the people of Israel was mentioned in 8.26. But this verse shows that it was not just a way of harassing others the way the Palestinians are doing to Israel right now. Instead, it is implied that it was a known form of execution. His words to the Lord more accurately say, Yet a little, and they will stone me. He was on the verge of being stoned in even the slightest amount of time or a single misstep in his interactions with them would result in his death. But even in these few words, we can get a look into the human condition. How often we are, how often we are when we're aggressive in attacking others over their wrongs. Every one of us does it, but we're slow in thanking them for their good deeds how slowly we will respond to kindness and how quickly we will respond negatively to adversity. So far, the night of the Passover and the departure from Ramses, the only note of thanks or praise from the people is found in the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. And guess what? That was a song penned by Moses and which the people only then joined in. But apart from that, there is no note of either thanks or praise for the many miracles thus far evinced by the Lord for the people. As the Geneva Bible comments on this verse, how ready the people are to slay the true prophets for their own purposes and how slow they are to take up God's cause against his enemies and false prophets. Verse five, and the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. In Numbers 20, Moses will again bring water from a rock for the people. However, at that time, he is told to gather the whole congregation together to see the miracle. Here, Moses is only telling them to take of the elders of Israel. And there are various opinions on why only they were chosen. One is that the congregation was ready to stone him, and so he left only with the elders. That makes no sense at all. If he told them what he was going to do, then they would have waited to see if he could do it. Another view is that the distance was too far for the weary people to travel, and so they left them there to accomplish the feat. But that doesn't fit either because the same weary people would still have to travel to where the water was coming from. That is, unless the water flowed all the way to where they are, but it says nothing of that. The elders are being singled out from the congregation for a reason. Only they are to witness this miracle. Verse 5 continues, Also take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go. Again, as has been seen in the past, Moses is specifically instructed about the rod, or mate, which he is to take with him. It is the rod of God which he had with him at the burning bush. This time, however, it specifically identifies it as the rod with which you struck the river. One scholar says that this could mean either the Nile or the Red Sea, because the finger of the Red Sea could be called in Hebrew, Ha-yor, or the river. But this is incorrect. Moses did not strike the waters of the Red Sea. He stretched the rod out over them. However, when in Egypt, at the first plague of blood, we read this in chapter 7, so he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all of the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The same rod which brought death to the river when striking the waters will be used to bring forth life, a river of the water of life for the people when he strikes the rock. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. The Lord has already selected the place and the miracle. 
the reason for the route, the reason for leaving out the interim stops from the narrative, and the reason for waiting until the people were almost completely parched. The reason for all of it belongs to the Lord. He has organized every single detail to reveal Jesus. He has now promised to stand before Moses. The pillar, which is the Lord, will stop and it will stand on the very rock chosen for the miracle. And it is a specific rock. In Hebrew, it says, Hatsur, the rock, not a rock. This is the first of 77 times that this word tsur or rock will be used in the Old Testament. Numerous times it's used to speak specifically of the Lord as the rock. The last time it's used in the Old Testament is in Habakkuk, where it is used in exactly that manner. It says there, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Even the coming Messiah is called by this term in Isaiah 8, verse 14. That verse is used then to speak of Jesus in the New Testament, both by Paul in Romans chapter 9 and by Peter in 1 Peter 2 verse 8. Thus, the rock is Christ. This rock is said by the Lord to be in Horeb. This is now the second time Horeb is mentioned in the Bible. The first was when Moses came to Horeb, the mountain of the God in Exodus 3 verse 1. Horeb means arid or desert, and thus what we have is a marvelous miracle coming. The words are precise, and they have been selected very carefully to reveal the Lord's greatness. Verse 6 goes on, And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Like the waters of the Nile, Moses is told to strike the rock. Instead of blood, water will come from the rock in the arid place. And it won't just be a small amount, but enough so that all the people may drink. Two million people plus innumerable animals are waiting anxiously for relief. There will be enough to satisfy all. The Lord is the God of miracles, not just enough to tease, but to fully satisfy. If he can bring such volumes of water from a solid rock, just imagine what he can do for you. Verse 6 continues, And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The word for sight here is ayin. It literally means eyes. With their own eyes, they will behold the marvelous sight of water gushing from solid rock. There was nothing hidden, there is no sleight of hand, and there is no magician's trick. The hand of Moses is used as the principal cause of this action. The rod of God is the instrumental cause which brought it about, and the glory of God is the final cause, the end purpose of what has transpired. Moses is thus again shown to be the Lord's representative. The rod is shown again to possess the ability to accomplish the Lord's miracles, and God is both pleased to care for his people and to receive their praise through his mighty acts of power. Verse 7, so he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. It is very rare for a place to be given two distinct names in the Bible based on one occurrence, but the Lord determined that it would be so in this case. The name Masa means testing, and it comes from the verb Nasa, which was used in verse 2 to describe the tempting or the testing of the Lord by the people. The name Meribah means quarreling, and it comes from the verb Riv, which was also used in verse 2 to describe the quarreling of the people against Moses. The fact that two names are given for one location is then intended to further elevate Moses' standing among the people. Masa is named first as it was tempting against the Lord. 
Meribah is named second because it was contention against Moses. Later in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, this place is only going to be called Masa because it refers only to the tempting of the Lord. There it says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Masa. Both names are exactingly explained in the final portion of verse 7 and the final words of the account. Verse 7 finishes with these words, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The passage seems to end on a sad note, doesn't it? But it doesn't really. It is instead looking back on the greatness of what God did despite the complaints of the people. They had questioned if the Lord was among them or not, and he confirmed that he was. But only the elders saw it directly. The others didn't. Why was this the case? What is the Lord trying to tell us through this? Stay tuned for an explanation of the passage after a short poetic break. Take in your hand the rod and go to a place I have chosen in a dry and barren land. I will show you the spot from where the water will flow, and from this marvel future generations will understand. I will stand upon the rock for you to see. A rock hard and dry will come to life. You shall come to the place even unto me, and with the rod you shall end this people's strife. They will drink of the water to renourish their soul. All will be satisfied. To them life I will give. I will prove to them I have it all under control. By water from the rock, their souls shall live. Our third thought today is a wonderful picture. The account of the water from the rock is memorable on its surface. If you tell it to a child, they will listen with wide-eyed wonder that such a thing could ever happen. But it's also an account which is intended to show us more than just the surface. It's meant to show us the problem with man and how God fixed it. It follows naturally after the story of quail and manna. Christ had to go to the cross in order for us to dine on his body, his flesh, the quail, his body, the bread, which is the manna. The account is said to have happened at Rephidim. It seems the name was changed after the account to Massa and Meribah, but it was in fact named because of the account. They're different areas. The name Rephidim gives the idea of rest and also support. The people received their rest and support from the waters even if it was contention and testing which occurred before the waters came. As the previous story pictured the death of the Lord in the giving of the manna, this picture follows naturally from that same act. The people thirsted in the wilderness for water, just as David thirsted for the truth of God in his own dry and thirsty land. He said in the 63rd Psalm, O God, you are my God. Early, in the more, early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David lived in a fallen world and longed for the time when he would see the power and the glory of the Lord in his sanctuary. The people of Israel then picture us, the people of God, complaining of thirst in the same dry and parched existence. But the Lord is always ready to provide for his people. And so he directs Moses and the elders to go to a particular rock where he will, in fact, provide for the people. There he says that he will stand before him on the rock. Paul explains what that rock is in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the fourth verse, he says, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The Bible scholars Kyle and DeLeach note that the Lord, standing before Moses upon the rock, signified the assistance of God. 
They then say this about the words Lifane and Amad, which are used to describe the Lord standing before Moses. These words, they say, frequently denote the attitude of a servant when standing before his master to receive and execute his commands. Thus, Jehovah, get this, this is important, Jehovah condescended to come to the help of Moses and assist his people with his almighty power. In this, then, we see an act of God where he condescends in a way which will be for the benefit of his people. It is a picture of the incarnation where Christ condescended to become a man and live as one of us in order to restore us to spiritual life. Knowing that the rock is Christ, one must ask, why were only the elders taken to witness this? The answer is in who they then must picture. As the rock is Christ, then these elders are those who saw Christ's work and witnessed to what they saw. They are our elders in the faith, the apostles. When the people are told about the water and where it came from, it will be an act of faith, not sight, to believe what they have been told. And this then corresponds to what the New Testament says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are to trust the words of the Bible for what they are. They are an eyewitness account of what Jesus Christ did. The apostles saw, they testified, and now we must accept their words as they have been given. And so Moses goes off with the elders and is told to strike the rock with the rod of God. Moses, whose name means he who draws out, is the principal cause of what will occur. He pictures Christ drawing out salvation for his people. The rod is Christ, the power of God. It is the instrumental cause by which the water will come from the rock. As Romans says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The rock is Christ, the material cause by which salvation comes forth. The action of striking the rock is the work of Christ, the efficient cause by which the process is carried out. And the water is Christ, the final cause by which salvation is accomplished and by which God is glorified. Every single detail pictures Christ. God sent his son, the spiritual rock, to live among us. He was born without sin, and thus he was capable of drawing out salvation for his people, pictured by Moses, he who draws out. He lived under the law and died under the law, pictured by the rod. His work in this is the process by which salvation was carried out. He was smitten with the curse of the law, pictured by the striking of the rock by the rod of Moses. Not only was this pictured here, but it was later prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before Christ came. Using the same word, nakah, as when Moses struck the rock at Horeb, there we read this in Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, nakah, by God and afflicted. And from him came the water by which we receive eternal life. As Jesus said to the people in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This was the final cause, 
The water from the rock is the giving of the Spirit. It is the granting of eternal life, and it is the glory of God revealed in each one of us who is called on Christ. This is according to the words he spoke to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Out of the dry place, Horeb, came the living waters. Likewise, out of the heavenly Mount Zion, which also means dry place, has come the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It is the Bible which testifies to the work of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the great plan of redemption of fallen man. And if you doubt that connection, that this is speaking of the word of God, stay, stay tuned for next week's sermon and you'll see it is. It should be remembered, though, that the Lord was very specific about the calling of the rod in Moses' hand, the rod with which you struck the river. The same rod which brings forth life from the rock can also bring forth death for those who reject the rock. The law is either fulfilled in Jesus Christ or it goes unfulfilled in one without Jesus Christ. It is a lesson and it is a warning that we are to choose wisely. In Isaiah chapter 4, the same word, nakah, is used to describe what the Lord himself will do to those who reject him. His delight, it says, is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike, nakah, the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and his faithfulness the belt of his waist. In this passage, we have a few simple verses about something that happened 3,500 years ago out in the middle of a barren desert, but which is actually an in-depth look into the very heart of God for those he loves. He sent his son to be stricken so that we may live. Truly, the question is, what manner of love is this? Let us never downplay the majesty of what he has done for us. And let us never cease to tell of his marvelous work to those still lost in a dry and thirsty land. And maybe this is you. Maybe you have a thirst which cannot be quenched. Let me tell you about the water of life and how you too can drink of it freely. This passage, as all of these passages we have seen, keeps taking us back to the law of Moses. The law of Moses. Something that God gave as a standard to the people of the world. This is my standard and you must meet this perfectly. And if you don't meet it perfectly, then there can be no fellowship between us at all. None. Zero. Prayers of non-regenerate people do not attain to the heavenly places because God will not hear them. That is the lesson of the Bible. We must fulfill this law absolutely perfectly. And he even said in his own law that he gave, if you do these things, you will live by them. And then the rest of the Bible is given to show us that nobody can do these things. They need something else. They need grace. And so Jesus came and he was born without the original sin that every human being on earth already possesses because of their father Adam. He was born in a woman without a earthly father and so he didn't inherit Adam's sin. He's fully man because his mother is a human. He's fully God because his father is God. And he lived under that law that condemns and we're going to see more of this. You wait till we get to Exodus 19 and 20 how utterly this law condemns us. And he lived under it without sinning, without ever violating the law that he wrote himself. And then he gave up his life as an exchange for our sins. And thus, 
the law, which is fulfilled in him, becomes our righteousness because he imputes his righteousness to us and our sin is nailed to the cross. And when he died on the cross, that law died with him. It is annulled. It is over for anybody who has put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. And for anybody who hasn't, they are bound to that law. 100%, you cannot miss one precept of it or you will never see God except in a very unfavorable way. That is the love of God which is found in Jesus Christ. And we keep seeing these stories. We have seen at least a thousand of these stories since Genesis 1-1. Little pictures of the same thing that God keeps trying to show us. I love you. I'm going to send my son to do this for you. Every single story pictures Christ, every one of them. And we're going to get to the law and we're going to see why he gave us Jesus because it is so utterly scary what happened at Mount Sinai. I tell you, I was typing that sermon and I was utterly fearful of the hand of God upon me without Jesus Christ. So if you've never called on him, if you've never simply received him as your Lord and Savior, I would ask you to call out today and just simply say, forgive me of my sins. I want your righteousness and I will receive that and you can have all the crummy stuff that I've done. Nail that to the cross, please. All right? And he will do so and you will be forgiven and it will be done once and for all. I had the pleasure of talking to a young Mexican guy this week came over to the house for just a few minutes and he understood the simplicity of this gospel with only about four verses. His English was not good, but he understood that he needed Jesus from that. And here we get into these deep theological analysis of the Bible and we don't need all that. What we need that for is to learn how much we appreciate what he did for us. What a great God. What, what an absolutely great God. Our closing verse today comes from Revelation 1. It's the 16th verse. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. It's wonderful, isn't it? What a God. Next week is Exodus 17. It's verses 8 through 16. The Lord will defeat Amalek in a glorious manner. It's entitled, Yehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. That'll be your 49th Exodus sermon. I'll tell you as I do each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you, so you don't need to whine on Facebook about how bad things are, all right? Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is called Water from the Rock. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, as the record of the story does tell. According to the commandment of the Lord, yes, according to his spoken word, and camped there in Rephidim where there would be rest, you'd think, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink or soon we will be dead. So Moses said to them this word, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? This is utterly futile, you see. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst instead? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what with this people shall I do? They're almost ready to stone me, I am relaying. And so for directions about this, I am asking you. And the Lord said to Moses, so he did tell, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, a scene quite wonderful for them I will make. Also take in your hand your rod as I am telling you so, 
with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock as I say, and water will come out of it. Then the people may drink this very day. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The water is Christ, as the Bible does tell. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This to us, please tell. How faithful we are giving into our weakness and complaining against you, Lord. Help us in our times of distress to remember the promises found in your word. Help us to praise you through every trial and to give you the glory you are justly due. Give us hearts through the trials to smile and to continue always to sing praises to you. Yes, Lord, thank you for our sure hope because of Jesus. Thank you for the marvelous things that you have done for us. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I just am so thankful for the water of life that flew, flows right out of the side of my Savior, my Lord Jesus. The spear went in, the water gushed out, and the world was healed. What a great story. What a, what a marvelous story. And here we dismiss this Bible. We say, ah, that part was written in, you know, by somebody in Babylon, and that part was added in later. And it is so utterly impossible when we look at your words that this has been manipulated by human hands. It is so utterly perfect, but it takes study and it takes understanding. And I thank you, Lord, for the many scholars of the past ages who have helped bring these words out and that are continuing to do so even today to reveal your word to people who are thirsty for you and who desperately want to know you. And the proof is all right here in the Old Testament leading right up to the day Jesus came. What a great God you are. Wow. Lord, we pray for Jim and Linda as they're traveling. We pray for uh, Roy, who's still stuck in the uh, aftercare center or after hospital care center, I guess you call it. And we pray for him and that he would uh, have some fun times in there and uh, stretch his legs and get walking soon. We pray for uh, Art Tinsman and that broken femur. What a pain that is. We're so sorry to hear that, Lord. We pray for him. And I pray for anybody here that is uh, struggling with their own trials or sicknesses or whatever, and that uh, you would be with them and help them through it. And Lord, we'll be sure to praise you. You've shown us that uh, testing you doesn't work. And instead, you tested us to see if we would be faithful. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful and to just rejoice in you always. How great you are. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, we only uh, add in the blessing that the Lord would have given over the bread and the wine. Other than that, it comes right from the hand of Paul. And there he writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he gave thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, just put the couple over there at the end. Of the, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And before uh, I close this in prayer, I have to say something. I meant to say this. And I, you know, I get so overwhelmed with things that I, and I won't get a chance to say this again. I didn't realize that last Sunday was Pastor Appreciation Day, even until Thursday. <laughs> what I'm saying is I just thought that she was just being nice and then a card showed up and I never put the pieces together until Thursday when I talked to Sergio on FaceTime. This is the Thursday after. And he said, oh, she's been planning this since I was there. I had no idea. You, you don't know how thankful I was walking through this past week. You know, Monday I'm thinking, gee, that was so wonderful. You know, I just thought it was little pieces of things coming together. I had no idea that this was planned at all. And so you just can't know what that meant to me. And now knowing that it was planned in advance, I just felt so stupid. I felt, I, I never thanked you the way that my heart meant all week long. And so I'm telling you now that this really meant a lot to me. 
undeserved as it is. I, it meant a lot to me, so thank you very much. Heavenly Father, I cannot think of a more blessed person who gets to preach to such wonderful people and who gets to open your word and share it with others. I cannot think of a person you bless more, and I cannot understand why. I do not understand it, Lord. Use me as you wish. Take me out of here when you're fed up with me. But know that I very much appreciate this congregation and everything that you have put together, even through my incompetence. I am so thankful to you. Lord, please bless each person here. Give them the joy of their hearts and the blessings of their soul in the week ahead. Take care of them. Restore them to uh, vitality that they're doing handsprings if they're not feeling well. And you just conduct them safely everywhere they go. Bless them just as you have blessed me. I thank you. I thank you. I love you, Lord. I know we all do. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.